Okay, you guys, we're uh, in this uh, series, this summer series that we're calling Discipleship Practices. Uh, Some people would call this the spiritual disciplines. I like the word discipleship practices because it highlights the fact that Jesus didn't just come to this world to die on a cross. That's a big part of why he came, but Jesus also came to this world to show us how to live. He actually chose a path and he walked that path, a path that he calls narrow. And you see this uh, in the gospels. Um, I mean, he took criticism and persecution for the path that he walked and how he walked it. Um, And it is the narrow way, but it is the narrow way that, that leads to life. And he didn't just walk this path, but he said, come follow me. And he invited us to to walk as he walks and to join him on the path, that narrow path that he chose to walk. And the discipleship practices that we're looking at are a big part of of the radical uh, nature of, of Jesus' walk and the path that he chose. And uh, so this is not just a summer where we're just looking at some interesting things, but um, this is a church of disciples who are, are radically wanting to pursue Jesus. And that's why this morning, I, I actually want to step away from looking at the next, um, the next discipleship practice. Uh, trust me, we're going to look at it. It's Sabbath. Uh, But instead, what I want to do is I want to frame this whole summer series uh, because I feel like if it's it's not properly framed, uh, we might miss the massive purpose, the massive why behind why we pray, why we digest God's word, why we fast, why we turn off the noise in our lives, uh, why we Sabbath. all of these things. And so I think even from the plain reading of our text today, uh, the the why will start to make itself known. Let's turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter three. We like to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Paul writing to Christians probably gathering in house churches in the Greek city Colossae. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who now is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, even filthy language from your lips. 
And do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ, who is all, is in all. You can be seated. So I'm actually gonna work backwards with this text today. Um, I'm gonna start at the end in verses 10 and 11 uh, because those two verses, if you look at them closely, uh, actually state who we are right now in Christ and what we're becoming when we choose to follow him, when, when we leave our old life and we trust Jesus for a new life. When we do this, we are given a whole new self. A self that is being renewed, that is being made new, as the text says, into the image of God. And when I look today, when you guys look today at what humanity is, we need to know that what we see in humanity today is not what God intended humanity to be. This is why Paul, in, in verses 10 and 11, why his, his title for God is, he calls God the creator, because this takes us back to creation when God made man and woman uh, they were stunningly glorious. They were without fault. They were exhibiting God's uh, majestic character, his heart. They were like God in every way. And they were showcasing God's glory through who, what God made them to be to all creation. Which means right now, I, I don't even know if we can imagine what God intended for humanity to be. I don't think we understand how far we have fallen, how far we are from what God made Adam and Eve to be. In fact, in Romans 8, it says this, it says that all creation is groaning right now and it tells us that it's groaning for something very specific. It's, it's, it's groaning for humanity to be redeemed. And the reason why creation is groaning for humanity to be redeemed is because God subjected all of creation to us. And so as humanity goes, creation grows. And essentially, Creation right now is groaning for humanity to get its act to get together. And I think this is the stunning promise of this text is that God didn't give up on us or his world, that God actually wants to renew it, that he wants to restore it, that he wants to heal it. He wants to reconcile it. And this begins with us. This is why Jesus um, is using language like being born again. It's, it, it, it's the only kind of language that really gets to the thing that 
God in Christ is going for in us is that literally, we are literally reborn. This is what verses one to nine uh, describe how this happens in Christ's power. Before we look at this, I just wanna state there's, there's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident of right now. Confident that every Christ follower in this room is experiencing. I don't care how good you look on the outside. There is a battle that is raging within every single one of us. And I used to be very uh, confused about this battle because I used to think things like, well, I'm a Christian now and and, and why is this battle still going on within? And in fact, honestly, I I was kind of embarrassed about it. I mean, some of the things that Paul has listed here in, in our Colossians 3 text, uh, I mean, these are, these are still things that, that I struggle with. And I think this is why so many Christians uh, live their lives to hide or to make the outside of their life look so good is, is because inside this battle is, is raging and they're just thinking, well, something must be wrong with me. But listen, I want us to know that Paul is writing this letter to Christians and he has to write this letter because Christians struggle. Every single one of us is in the same boat in this regard. I mean, look around the room right now. You're just looking at fellow strugglers. And I'll tell you what really helped me was when I started to just see the Apostle Paul, uh, those places in Scripture where he lets us into his own struggle. In fact, sometimes you're let inside and you have a window into his heart and and it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Take Romans 7. I mean, this is one of those places. And and there's a lot of Christians, because it can make one feel, feel a little bit uncomfortable, Uh, There are a lot of Christians who think Paul in Romans 7 is describing his life before he met Christ. Well, verses 7 to 13 of Romans 7 are past tense, so that would make sense. But in verse 14, he switches from the past tense to the present tense. And let me show you what he writes. Again, this is present tense. He just switched from past tense. Now he's in present tense present tense. He says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that that God's instruction, the path that he has laid out is good as it is written. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful self. And he keeps writing. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. 
And then he culminates all of this in verse 24 with, oh, what a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. That's Paul. I can attest to the things that Paul just described because I too feel like a divided man, a man with two selves, where the old and the new self are battling it out. And I know some of you right now are, are, are still probably thinking, wait a second, I thought that when I became a Christian that the battle is over, that Christ has won, that the old is gone, the new has come, that we now live this victorious life in Christ. Yes, we have left our old life, but our old life hasn't left us, and therefore, there's this battle within us. And just staying with Romans 7, two times we just read, Paul speaks of the sin that dwells in him, that still lives in him. And Paul is also alluding to the same thing in our Colossians uh, 3 text. In verse 5, he talks about what is earthly within us. And again, sin is not just something that's out there. It's not something that's just outside of me. As we learned recently from Jesus in Mark 7, all sin, according to Jesus, proceeds from one place, the human heart. But thank God that Romans 7 is not the end of the matter, that we have Romans 8, because in Romans 8, Paul talks about something else that lives in us. God's spirit 22 times uh, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit comes in and makes his home in us. Which means his spirit watches what we watch. He reads what we read. He goes where we go. He does what we do. He's not just watching us from a distance. The Holy Spirit is in us right now. And herein lies the battle, the struggle for a Christian. Romans 7 says, sin lives in me. Romans 8 says, the Spirit makes his home in me. Remember several years ago, a guy came to me. He had... He had this enormous private life that he was living that was full of sensuality and addiction. And he said, Rod, I don't have a conscience. I literally don't have a conscience. The only thing that came to me was, well, pray for one then. Pray that God would, would, would pursue you. Pray that God would, would, would come into you. Pray that his spirit would, would make his home into you. Six months after that, he called me back up. This stone-hearted man could not stop crying, weeping. And it wasn't just with me. He was just like, I, I, I can't even look at my family without weeping. It's because the Holy Spirit came into his life. But then all hell broke loose in his life. That war had begun, this, this intense war between the indwelling sin and the indwelling spirit. And the spirit that came in was now starting to clean house. 
And I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit isn't just into a little cleanup. He isn't into just, uh, you know, re remaking one room. In fact, he's not even into a whole home makeover where we think he's gonna make us into a cute little cottage. He's literally making us into a castle fit for a king. But when we become a Christian, we don't go from warfare to peace. We move from fighting a battle we can't win to fighting a battle we can't lose. And it's a different war. The struggle before you become a Christian is a war that you can't win, but the war that you fight after you become a Christian is a, is a war that you can't lose. Now, how do we win this battle? Let's go deeper into the text. Look at verse five, Colossians 3, verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Okay, he says, put to death. Put to death there is not a suggestion by Paul. Uh, it's in the imperative. This is a command. Because for conversion to happen in our lives, for us to live in this newness of life, for, for the image of God to be restored in us, death must occur, real death. We must kill what's killing us. We must destroy that which is destroying us. And Paul gives us some lists here, he gives us uh, a list in verse five, he gives us another list in verse eight. And yeah, in one sense, you could think of, of, of these lists as sin, but actually it's deeper than sin. This is my old self. This is myself bent inward upon itself, bent towards self-centeredness and self-importance and self-absorption and self-obsession and self-indulgence. In fact, the list in verse five, I mean, literally, just let your eyes see it because it's all connected to the last word, idolatry. This is where we have to uh, ask, what's, what's idolatry? Well, the Bible deals so thoroughly with idolatry because biblically speaking, an idol is, is simply what we live for. It's what we give our hearts to. An idol is simply any earthly thing, person, possession from which we derive our meaning, our sense of worth, our satisfaction, our, our identity, our happiness, our security, our hope. And John Calvin, I think, said it so well. He said, because our hearts were made to worship something as massive as God, when our hearts don't worship God, our hearts become idol factories where we turn anything into a God thing. He says, we will make something our life because we were made to worship. And I don't know about you, but I can see this with my own heart. My heart can do this with almost anything health, wealth, substance, sport, hobby, toy, latest gadget, relationship, 
can do this with our careers, ministry, our family, our kids. To the point where we must have these things because our self-worth, our, our, our identity, our, our very lives would, would, would fall apart if they were removed from us. See, this is why the first commandment is also the first importance. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols, no graven images. Because all sin comes back to idolatry. It comes back to what we worship. And here's what we absolutely have to know. Whatever we worship, it will convert us we will become like the idols in our life. Now, if you want to know the thing that fuels idolatry in our lives, it's, it's, it's the last commandment. You shall not covet. See, the 10th commandment of all the, the commandments exposes, I think, what is most wrong with our heart. It's that our hearts covet. And this covetousness turns our hearts into idol factories. In fact, we see it in verse five. At the end there, it says, and get rid of all covetousness, which is idolatry. Now here's something that I found interesting. So around the time of Jesus, um, the, the Bible was translated uh, from Hebrew into Greek because Greek became the lingua franca of that day. And our New Testament, that's the reason why our New Testament is in Greek. That's why our Old Testament is in Hebrew. But we have this thing, this, this translation called the Septuagint. So uh, I went to the Septuagint this week because I was very curious, when they came to Exodus 20, verse 17, that 10th commandment, you shall not covet, I wanted to see what Greek word they put there, and the Greek word there is epithumia. It's, it's, it's the verb form of, of, of that noun. That is the same word in verse 5 covet, which leads to idolatry. Now, the reason why I mention this is because this Greek word, epithemia, is used by every New Testament uh, author, starting with Jesus, to describe what's most wrong with our hearts. This is what needs to change. This is what needs to be taken out of, of, of our hearts for real transformation to take place. Now our text translates the word as evil desires, but I think that's a little bit misleading. Let me tell you how the word breaks down. The word breaks down this way. Uh, thumia is, is the Greek word for desire, but then it has this prefix epi added to it. And you have a sense of what epi means. These are epi desires. These are uber desires. These are these raging desires of our heart. And it's not just uh, desire for bad things or for evil things. It could be uh, the, the desire that our heart has for anything. 
but it's when our hearts say, I must have that thing. And it's not necessarily that that thing is bad. It's not necessarily that our hearts want bad things, it's that our hearts want things too badly. That's epithumia. And our New Testament authors say, this is how sin works on our hearts. Uh, it, 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 it makes our hearts then prone to take anything good or bad and turn that thing into an ultimate thing, a godlike thing. Let me just show you just a few of the places uh, where, where the New Testament makes use of this word. I mean, it's all over the place. But I just want to show you how all the New Testament authors are doing this. I'll start with the author James. James 1 verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Again, it's that word epithumia. I don't think evil desire there is a great translation. These are those raging desires. And, and, and then they're enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, James here is, is, is talking about sin, not in terms of behavior. He's talking about it in terms of seduction. And what is it that actually seduces us? He says it's epithumia, those inordinate lusts of our heart, and he says, once our hearts are seduced, there's a conception and, and the conception gives birth to a child. That child is sin. It doesn't stop there. The child grows up, gives birth to a grandchild and the grandchild is death. Another place where James uses it, in James chapter four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Epithumia, that battle within you? You desire but you do not have, so this is why you kill. You desire epithemia, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Again, epithemia is, 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 is kind of the sin underneath everything. Uh, let me show you this in, in 1 John. This is Jesus' disciple John writing. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust there is epithemia. The lust of the eyes, epithemia, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its epithemia will pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. And we all know just the, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, which, which it can take something like beauty and, and appearance, which in and of itself isn't bad, but it turns it into an ultimate thing where we obsess and we crave, causing our eyes to behold things as an idolater. And this is where Jesus uses the word. He says, the epithemia of your eyes, if it causes you to sin, gouge it out. Peter's another author in the New Testament. He uses it all the time. Let me just show you a few places. First Peter 1, verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the epithemia, the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Or another place, uh, 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from epithemia, which wages war against your soul. 
And going back to Paul in, in Romans 7, I mean, Paul actually uses this word all the time like he does in Colossians 3, but in, in Romans 7, Paul's kind of given his testimony about when he was this faultless, blameless, perfectly righteous Pharisee. But he says it was the 10th commandment where God says, you shall not covet, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife your neighbor's house or car, your neighbor's bank account. We should be rid of, of all this epithemia. See, Paul could look at all the other laws and he could see they, they were behavioral. I didn't kill anybody. I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't ever committed adultery with anyone. I honor my father. I honor my mother. I don't have any graven images that I bow down to. But this last commandment is a matter of a person's heart. It gets at one's motives. And through that commandment, Paul could see through all of his righteousness and faultlessness down to the ugly in his heart. Because coveting is more than just wanting, it's idolatrous wanting. It's wanting something more than God. It's craving uh, something so much where, where, where you're saying to God, God, I need this to be happy. You are not enough. And this epithemia creates idols. The idols feel the epithemia resulting in us taking anything that is in our world and turning it into an ultimate thing. And see, this is why if we're going to experience real, lasting, deep, authentic transformation, we absolutely must identify the idols in our life. Let me just give you some practical ways to do this. When you get a spare moment in your, in your life, where does your mind go? Or when you're bored, what do you turn to? See, how we fill up our boredom is usually, will, will usually lead us to an idol. What's the first thought you have when you get out of bed in the morning? Or, what thing in your life, if it was taken away from you right now, would cause you to not want to live? Another way to look at it. These, these, these epi desires, uh, sometimes also accompanied with them are these epi emotions. I mean, raging desire oftentimes produces raging emotions. And I'm not talking uh, about normal emotion. I'm talking about over-the-top emotions, uh, over-the-top anger, jealousy, bitterness, fear, worry, anxiety, frustration. These over-the-top emotions will also oftentimes lead you right back to an idol in your life. And see, whatever these idols are, these, these, these idols have become our life. And once we identify the idols, this is why Paul says we must kill them. But herein lies the problem. We can't kill them. 
The heart is what it is. This is why when we try things like just willpower and, and, and trying harder to be better, I mean, some of you, this is the treadmill you're on every single day. You're just like trying harder and harder, better and better. We can't remove these things. We can only replace them. And how do we replace them? Verses one to four, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. In other words, it's as simple as this. We must set our heart and our mind on things above. We must place our, our, our mind, our affections on Christ, his gospel, his word. We must saturate, saturate ourselves with God. We must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We must immerse ourselves in his story, uh, a story that tells us not only what God is doing in the world, for the world, but speaks a word to us and tells us who we are, as opposed to looking at all the earthly ways to get our needs met. We must make Jesus our life. And now we have entered the massive why behind this, the, the, the discipleship practices that we're looking at this summer. This is why we pray. This is why we worship. This is why we take in his words, his book. This is why we Sabbath. This is why we fast. This is why we turn off the, the, the noise in our world. This is why we gather in community with people who are gonna point us to Christ because we will actually become what we set our mind and hearts on. Every one of us right now is, is, is being converted by something. And the something is whatever has our heart, our affections. I mean, just look at our wor world. I, I hardly even have to say this to you because you already know it, how fast our world is being converted and how fast our world is converting others. I mean, it is a conversion that is largely driven by epithumia, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the worldly passions, the carnal desires, and it's all leading to sin and greater perversion. And in the end, it all leads to death. And our Bibles let us know it's all gonna fade away. And the degree to which we hitch our hearts to it, we will fade as it fades. And this is why throughout history, you have movements like the Desert Fathers or, or the Essenes, people who, who are looking at the world around them and they see that it's a total shipwreck. So they leave it for the desert where they can fully immerse themselves in God and set their mind and heart on him. That's actually what we're going for this summer. A radical leaving behind of our idols. A replacing of them 
for a radical pursuit of God. I just pulled two keys out of my pocket. Someone this morning took this so seriously. He said, Rod, I am so obsessed with my motorcycles. He said, in fact, after the service, I had it all set up to meet with a dealer to buy a new one, a better one. And he came to Crossroads and gave, gave us his keys and he found a way home. It's, I mean, we can sit here and listen to sermons our whole life. That's what he said to me. I'm done with just listening to a sermon. Let me just end with the ultimate why. It's, it, it gets into how God changes us, how God transforms us from the inside out. See, the Bible says something about our hearts. It describes our hearts as stone. And, and, and how do you change something that, that, that is as hard as stone? Do you just hammer it? Do you chisel it away? I mean, you could do this, but this is not God's way. God says, the way I change your stony heart is I melt it. And John Donne, the, the, the British poet, I think, gets at this. Listen to these words he writes. He says, God, take me to you, imprison me, for I, unless you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. I want us to hear what John Donne is saying. What he's saying is for us to actually give up our idols to let go of lesser things, lesser loves. We actually need a greater love to capture our heart. Someone or something that we love more. And that someone or that something that he is referring to is the thing that our hearts have been made for as God. But see, unless we see that God is the greater yes, the greatest yes. We'll never be able to say no. It's kind of like when we were younger and we, we, we never really got over a crush until a, a new love came along. And that's what John Donne is saying. He says, he's saying, God, unless, unless you enthrall me, unless you ravish me, I'll never be able to give up these lesser things that my heart is so attached to that I love so much. And I'm here to tell you that God does this. He enthralls, he ravishes our hearts like no other. If we would just stop indulging in the things of this world, if we would set our mind and hearts on him. I mean, listen to what Paul says in, in verse one. He says, since you've been raised with Christ. Wait a second, raised? I thought this is future. No, that's past tense. Just like in verse three, he says, since you have died, that's past tense. It's already happened. I mean, what's Paul talking about here? 
when you and I throw our lives in Christ, when we set our minds and hearts on him, when Jesus Christ becomes our life, we're hidden in him. Where Jesus' death is now my death. This is why Paul says, you died. Where his resurrection is my resurrection. You have been raised. He could keep going here. Christ's path, past is now my past. Christ's future is my future. Because I'm hidden in him. And I think this means the most amazing thing there is that, that, that we ought to just even reflect on all the time that everything that is true about Jesus right now is also true about me. It's true about you right now. In fact, from our text, think about where Jesus is right now. He's at God's right hand. God's right hand is the place of ultimate honor and privilege and intimacy. And at that place, the father's heart is just bursting with love for his son. He delights in him. He cherishes him like no other. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. When you and I embrace Christ, we are actually hidden in Christ. We too have been raised. We too right now are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yes, you might think you're sitting in that chair, but Paul would also say, but right now you are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in that place of ultimate honor and privilege and intimacy. And even more, when the Father looks at you, it's as if he's looking at his own son, the son he loves and cherishes and adores where Christ's righteousness is your righteousness, where Christ's beauty is, is your beauty. And I know right now what some of you are saying, you're saying, I don't believe that, I'm too unacceptable. But Jesus doesn't accept you just as you are. God the Father accepts you as you are right now in Christ. You're hidden in him. Which is why Baxter Kruger says, we are no longer like Adam hiding in the bushes because of our sin and shame. We are now hidden in Christ. And Paul is right, there is now therefore no condemnation, none for those who are in Christ. God delights in us, God treasures us, he accepts us, he loves us the same way he loves, delights, and accepts his very own son. And if this doesn't enthrall you or ravish you, maybe C.S. Lewis is right. You're like a kid making mud pies in a slum when God is offering you a holiday at the sea. I know God's putting his finger on idols in your life. Tell me. Which of those idols will love you, cherish you, redeem you, heal you like this God? 
In Crossroads, this is why as fellow strugglers, we're all in the same boat. We can acknowledge our idols. We can repent of our sin because we are repenting of sin that has already been forgiven. And it's why we're not just saying no to things and removing things from our lives, but it's why we also are saying uh, a, a bigger yes. We're seeking Christ. We're setting our mind, our heart upon him. We're taking him in, we are making Jesus our life. And if you're wondering how to do that, the discipleship practices are a great place to start. This, in one sense, this is so like encouraging. But can I tell you how it makes me feel? It convicts me. God, we pray for revival. And God, may it start in my heart, in our hearts. Thank you that we don't do this to get you to like us. But we put to death and we pursue you with everything we have, knowing how much you do love us.